Hi, this is Malia Warner, and welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. Today's episode is a continuation of the reading of Lies of the Magpie, the story of my journey healing through postpartum depression and chronic illness. Welcome to episode 27, Lies of the Magpie, chapter 5. Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 5 The dust haboob hovers around my car, caressing its spindly gray fingers over the roof and down the hood, a jilted lover saying goodbye, begging to stay one moment longer. I've turned off the air but can't open the windows to let the dust escape until the cloud leaves. This is a bad omen, I think. Maybe God is giving me a sign that I shouldn't be going to Tucson. The cloud lingers and I begin to think that maybe I have been swallowed by this storm and now exist in another dimension inside the belly of this beast. Then, in an eerie dissipation, as if milking a final dramatic curtain call, the haboob swirls and condenses into a tight ball, rolls off the hood onto the ground and breaks apart, releasing a single trapped tumbleweed, which bounces away across the desert floor. I roll down the windows and turn the air up to full power. I blow the dirt out of my nose and drink the last sip of my water to wash the dust down my dry throat. Before the dust clears from my car, I have three hard contractions in a row. I rack my brain thinking of all the tricks and tools I've learned during four pregnancies to slow down preterm labor. One, drink plenty of water. My water bottle is empty. Two, go to the bathroom. Interestingly enough, a full bladder makes contractions worse. Should I pull over and relieve myself? No one would see. The chances of another vehicle passing are slim. But just as I move my foot from the gas to the brake pedal, my mind floods with images of me squatting unprotected as a rusty truck pulls over and a burly man with a filthy beard steps out. He's wearing old boots and is slowly hitting nunchucks against the palm of his hand as he strides menacingly towards me. Why my imagination assigned him nunchucks as his weapon of choice, I don't know. But in my day terror, the pee just keeps pouring out of me and I can't stop it even though this stranger and his nunchucks are getting closer and closer. The long drive to Tucson gives the overtaxed faculties of a pregnant woman too much time to run wild. In any case, I decide against pulling over. Number three, The best remedy for easing early contractions is to get off my feet, lie down, and prop my legs up on a pillow. Not possible unless I turn around and go back home. Should I turn around and head back home? Last night when we argued, Aaron had asked me to stay. Don't go to Tucson, he had said. Please stay home. But stay home and do what? Lie around on the couch all weekend? Watch a movie? Read a novel? Very funny. No one becomes successful by lounging around on their couch reading novels. If there's one thing I've learned from growing up on a farm and in church, it's this. That busyness is the best way to combat slothfulness. The devil finds mischief for lazy hands and makes the idle mind his playground, blah blah blah, and every other catchphrase about improvident living. Staying home this weekend would have been so unproductive. I wouldn't have been able to get anything done except to count contractions and worry about my water breaking. This conference is the perfect distraction. 
And I have good intentions, right? I'm doing this so I can be a more effective piano teacher. That's a worthy goal, right? So if I'm trying to be productive and have worthy goals, God will bless me so I don't have my baby on the side of the road, right? I move my foot back to the gas pedal and press it to the floor. Turning around is not an option, and there's no time to stop for a bathroom break. I've got to close the distance between me and Tucson as fast as possible. After a couple of weeks, Danny and I got settled into our Arizona apartment and grew accustomed to Aaron leaving every day for work and returning home late at night. Danny became my little buddy. In my journal, I wrote, I suppose every new mother goes through an adjustment phase when they stay home with a baby. At first it was hard, but now I am crazy in love with Danny. I couldn't imagine being away from him during the day. I am loving being a stay-at-home mom. Still, I knew I needed to work harder and perform better in order to impress those invisible mothering judges, especially in regards to pregnancy and delivery. I would get it right this time. I would earn a better grade. No three-week early delivery or a 7.5 APGAR score for any more of my babies. But, according to the wisdom of that great philosopher John Lennon, as featured in the life-changing documentary Mr. Holland's Opus, Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. In August, I had my first prenatal appointment with my new Arizona obstetrician. The week leading up to the appointment, I had started having contractions. I'd hoped the preterm labor I'd experienced with Danny was a fluke, a one-time thing. No such luck. It seemed my uterus was prone to contract more than a team of commissioned corporate lawyers. You're 29 weeks and already dilated. Dr. Magnuson said with a grim expression, Was your last baby premature? No, he was born at 37 weeks and perfectly fine, no complications. I didn't like where this conversation was going. Dr. Magnuson sent me to labor and delivery for monitoring. After two hours, they sent me home with a prescription for breathing and instructions to limit my physical activity. The next day, I didn't take Danny for our morning stroller walk. I didn't push him in the playground swing. I didn't vacuum or scrub bathrooms. We didn't go to the library or the grocery store. We didn't go swimming. At nap time, I didn't carry Danny up to bed, but knelt behind as he practiced crawling up the stairs on his own. This new routine of non-doing was okay for a solid three days before we were both stir-crazy and ornery. Thursday night, Aaron came home about 10.30 and crawled into bed next to me. It still surprised me each time he walked through our front door to see him wearing a black patch over his left eye. A wood splinter had cut his cornea when he'd been chopping logs for the church campfire over the weekend. That week, Aaron had helped five families move in three days. Our intimate contact consisted of me squeezing antibiotic drops in his eye before work, at lunch, and at bedtime. I rolled towards him. Aye, Patcha Warner, how be the spoils of your day? Very funny. He handed me the tube of medication and took off the patch. You try convincing people to open their doors to a salesman who looks like a pirate and drives a trashy car. I applied the ointment and retaped the gauze. I matey, but you be so cute no person could resist giving you their treasure. He moved close and stretched his arm over me, mumbling something about pirate's booty. I sat up quickly. Dr. Magnuson said I have to limit physical activity. Aaron pulled back. What does that mean? he asked, releasing his hold. Um, at my appointment, I had been so upset about having to take the medication that I hadn't asked for specifics. 
Could I have sex, or was that a forbidden physical activity? Any man would have thought to ask the question. It had been the last thing on my mind. Before I could formulate logical sentences to explain the happenings of my recent stint at labor and delivery, Aaron rolled over, rustled his pillow until it conformed into the shape he wanted, and fell into a deep sleep. The next morning, as usual, Danny was wide awake at 6 a.m., our ever-predictable early bird. For convenience, and to not wake up Aaron, I did carry him downstairs where I changed his diaper, fixed him a bottle of formula, and parked him in front of the television, feeling grateful that PBS started their children's programming at 6.30 a.m., with Caillou, in my opinion the second worst children's show in the universe, only beat out by Teletubbies, followed by an hour of Sesame Street at 7 a.m. I fell back asleep on the floral beast and woke to the strains of the Elmo's World theme song at 7.45 as Aaron quietly closed our front door behind him. He left without kissing me goodbye. Immediately, I called Lia. I think Aaron's mad or annoyed with me, I told her. She hurried over and we had an extensive conversation. I couldn't do much of anything else. You can hardly blame him, she replied. He's outside all day, every day, burning his butt off making money while you sit here in this cushy apartment doing nothing. The broken springs on the couch poked into my back. There really was no comfortable position on that couch. If the floral beast was anything, it wasn't cushy. I didn't ask to sit in this apartment all day, I argued my case to Laya. I didn't ask to have preterm labor and to be put on limited activity. I would 100 times rather wash the dishes and run errands than be cooped up all day. Doesn't Aaron realize that? Doesn't matter, Laya said. Aaron's working hard. You have to suffer equally or your marriage won't be equal. It's not fair if Aaron is sweating in the sun while you're at home relaxing. I think being home all day with Danny is hard, I said. And trying to limit my activity is harder than just doing what needs to be done. Laya rolled her eyes. Yeah, like anybody's going to believe that. How do you decide what you are or aren't going to do in a day? Laya probed. I have to sort of fill out the situation, track my contractions, and make a gut decision. It was all very unscientific. Like right now, for example. Could I get up and wash the breakfast dishes? And if I could wash dishes, then why not wipe the table, counter, and stovetop? And if I could do that, then why not mop the floor and scrub the sticky place where Danny spilled his oatmeal and peaches? And if I could mop, then why not vacuum, especially where Danny dumped out the box of saltine cracker crumbs? The line was so unclear. Was anyone else at the appointment when Dr. Magnuson told you to limit your physical activity? Laya asked. I shook my head. Did he give you a prescription for bed rest or specific written instructions about what you should or shouldn't do? Oh my goodness. Suddenly it became so obvious. I couldn't believe I hadn't seen it before. Aaron didn't believe me. He thought I'd made up the whole thing about limited activity. He thought I was trying to get out of doing work. He thought I was being lazy. Laya reminded me of that time in seventh grade when Susie Sorensen showed up to P.E. with a signed doctor's note excusing her from calisthenics, the most dreaded unit of the required class. Coach Oldman was notoriously strict, and the fact that students were crying as she forced the class to hold splits and spraddles didn't soften her heart to stop the timer one second early. We all knew that Susie hadn't really twisted her ankle. 
She sat on the bleachers reading while we stretched painfully trying to touch our toes and whispered suspicions that her mother had forged the doctor's signature. And hadn't her ankle brace been on her left leg yesterday? Aaron thinks I'm faking, I said out loud. No wonder he's been cold and unsympathetic towards me. Until Lia pointed it out, I hadn't considered the possibility. But from that moment forward, I would begin to take notice of the subtle messages in his body language. So I have to prove to Aaron that I'm not a faker. I have to prove that he didn't marry a lazy, soap opera-watching, bonbon-eating housewife. I looked to Lia for help. What do I do? Well, she said, you can't let Aaron think that being home on the couch is enjoyable. You have to prove that your life is every bit as miserable as his. If he's out knocking doors in scorching weather, then you have to suffer as much as he does, or even more. Tell me what I need to do. Obviously, this means no reading novels or watching TVs or movies while you lay on the couch. Also, no hobbies or personal interests. You might have to lie around the apartment all day, but you shouldn't enjoy it. Laya's logic always made such perfect sense to me. She continued, And you can't just mooch off Aaron's hard work. You need to find a way to be productive. At that moment, Danny grew bored of the TV and began driving his toy cars across my forehead until the wheels got tangled in my hair. Never one to linger longer when kids appeared, Lia scattered the moment Danny attempted to run a matchbox motorcycle up her nylon leg. So distracted by Danny, I barely noticed her leave, but I continued to stew over what she'd said while Danny ran his cars over the hill of my belly. I didn't know what I could do from this couch to be productive, but I did know how not to be happy. I laid there ruminating over two topics that were guaranteed to make me miserable. I fretted about our debt, particularly what I could do to pay off Aaron's $250 emergency room copay. Then I made an extensive mental list of everything that I thought that Aaron thought I should be doing during the day that I wasn't doing. It worked. When Aaron came home, my day had been at least twice as miserable as his day, and I made certain he knew it. On August 15th, our second wedding anniversary, Aaron came in for lunch carrying the mail. Happy anniversary, babe. He leaned over and gave me a kiss. I am taking you out to dinner tonight. Dining was not typically in our budget. I think that would probably be okay, I said. Danny and I really need to get out of this apartment. Aaron sat at the card table and opened mail while I made him a sandwich. Without even knowing, our Arizona Power Company had sent us a lovely anniversary gift. Our first Arizona summer electricity bill. That has to be a misprint, Aaron slid the bill across the table. We're barely a thousand square feet. I picked up the trifold and saw $383.19 typed on the payment due line. Nearly $400 in electricity for our first month here? I'd only budgeted for $100. Where would we get the other $300? I'll call the company after lunch and fix the mistake, I promised. Over the phone, the customer service representative asked about our thermostat setting and nearly choked to death laughing when I told him 76 degrees. Most people set their thermostats around 82, he informed me. In Arizona, you don't cool for comfort. You cool for survival. That night, I had a casserole baked and ready when Aaron came home. Babe, I'm taking you out to eat. Aaron put up his hands, questioning the casserole. 
That electricity bill was not a mistake, I said, putting forks next to our plates. Until we pay it off, we don't need to eat out. An anniversary casserole will do just fine. He reached in his bag and handed me a jewelry box with a delicate gold chain necklace and a single pearl. On Sunday, I was wearing my anniversary necklace in church when Danny reached up with his pudgy baby fingers, grabbed hold of the pearl, and yanked, breaking the chain. Take it back to the store and get a refund, I told Aaron. If it's not childproof, it's not practical for me to have right now. We need the money more than I need jewelry. With our thermostat set to 82 degrees, our apartment turned into a sauna. Without stroller walks, playground time, or swimming, Danny turned into Baby Hyde. The upstairs had no ceiling fans, and we woke up from naps drenched with sweat. But how could I complain when Aaron was walking door-to-door in 115-degree temperatures all day? At my next monthly prenatal appointment, I was dilated even more. You're 33 weeks along. You've got to keep this baby in for at least three more weeks. Four weeks is even better. Dr. Magnuson shook his finger at me. I don't think we need to hospitalize you, but you need to be on strict bed rest. He sent me to labor and delivery for more monitoring and ordered the nurse to give me two shots of breathing and double the daily dose of my prescription. By the time I stopped at Anissa's house to pick up Danny, I was shaking like a withered leaf. I drove home trying hard to hold the steering wheel and focus on the road. But Danny and I could no longer tolerate being cooped up in our apartment. We took up swimming again. Lia sat daintily on the edge of the pool, kicking her legs in the water. Aaron's wondering why it's okay for you to go swimming, but it's not okay for you to do the laundry, she said. A few days later, I was already awake and working hard bed-resting on the floral beast when Aaron came downstairs dressed for work. On his way out the door, he bent down and picked up something from the doorstep. Here, he threw a newspaper at me. Something to keep your mind busy today. I read the local headlines and turned the pages until something in the classified section made my heart jump. There were columns and columns of pianos listed for sale, hundreds of pianos, and for amazingly affordable prices. In the heart of an aging community, arthritis, death, and downsizing were pushing pianos onto the street. Danny scooted across the floor and pulled himself up to standing against the couch. I clapped and cheered. He copied me, lost balance, and fell on his padded diaper. My mind was making calculations. Danny, if I signed up 10 students, I could pay for a piano in two months. What if your mom teaches piano in the afternoon while you sleep? I tapped his nose and he gave me a tooth and gum smile. Laya found teaching piano lessons to be an ingenious idea. You've always wanted your own piano, but you knew you couldn't buy one on Aaron's hard-earned dime. This way, you pay for your own piano and you can contribute to your family's income without leaving home. The piano was delivered the next week with tuning included in the price of delivery. I don't think sitting on a piano bench would break any bed rest laws, do you? I propped Danny up against the bench and sat down to play. Danny smiled and reached up, pressing the keys and laughing at the sound. Shortly, he lost interest and crawled over to his toys. All of my music books were stored in boxes at my parents' house or had been passed down for use by younger siblings, but I played for two hours from memory. Aaron questioned the logic of starting piano lessons before the baby came. I don't think sitting in a chair and teaching a 30-minute lesson is going to force me into labor, I argued. It will take months to fill my teaching slots anyway, so I might as well start now. I can handle a few students, and they'll know I'll be taking a week off for the baby before they sign up. Aaron shrugged. I printed a flyer with my name and phone number repeated across the bottom on tear-off strips. 
Aaron pinned up the flyers in the apartment office, the laundromat, the post office, and the grocery store. The next day, I got a phone call. My first piano student was not the elementary age beginning student I had expected to teach. I opened the door to see an older woman supported by a walking cane. Linda didn't need beginning lessons. She was already proficient and said she simply wanted a way to keep her skill polished. I liked her. It was nice to be up off my couch and get to know another person out here in the desert. Maybe I'd made a new friend. I hoped she would decide to come back. At 35 weeks, Aaron walked me gingerly into labor and delivery. Even on the double dose of medication, my contractions were coming so hard and fast. What we were most worried about was that the next day, Aaron was supposed to fly to St. Louis for a week of final testing and licensing so that he could legally begin selling stocks and bonds. He was worried about leaving me alone, and I was worried he was going to miss the birth of his second baby. To make matters even more complicated, Anise and Calvin had left the week before to travel to, of all places, Africa on a two-week safari. I'm so sorry I can't watch Ashley and Tyson while you're in Africa, I had apologized to Anise. I'm so sorry I won't be here to help you. Anise lifted my hand and watched my fingers quiver. When does Aaron leave for St. Louis? Next week. He has to go. If he doesn't, he can't get his office. Do you want me to take Danny for a few days? Anise had offered. I shook my head adamantly. Goodness, no. You have so much to do to pack and get all your malaria shots. Danny's not hard. If he were walking, it would be harder to chase him around, but he doesn't go far doing that army crawl. Anise gave me a big hug. Do not have this baby until I get back from Africa. I hugged her back. Have fun and don't get eaten by lions. After a couple of hours monitoring my contractions, Dr. Magnuson decided to send us home. These contractions are definitely doing something, but you really need to keep this baby in at least another week. The next morning, Aaron kissed me long and held me tight before he left for St. Louis. His hand on my stomach followed the movement of our baby's kicks, like a little game of whack-a-mole. Baby, you stay put, he shook his finger at my stomach. You are grounded to your womb, he said in his best Elmer Fudd accent. Good luck, I handed him some cookies for the road. You'll do great on your tests. I know you'll pass. He picked up his carry-on. Who will you call if your water breaks? I hadn't made many friends stuck in the apartment all day. There was Carly... Aaron's office assistant, but she didn't have any children. There was Linda, my piano student, but she had grown up an only child, had never married or had children of her own, and I kind of thought the baby thing weirded her out. But I didn't want to worry Aaron any more than he already was. Patsy, from church, she said I could call her any time. Corporate office promised they would fly me right out if you go into labor. A buckling contraction hit, and I sunk onto the couch. I'm already in labor. Aaron scowled, but remembered something about Danny's birth. If your water breaks, get an epidural. Then I should make it back in time. I gave him a weak smile and waved. Once he closed the door, I said, Can I have the epidural now? As bad as these things hurt, I didn't know if I could last another week. The baby did stay put until Calvin and Anise returned from Africa. They showed up at my apartment to kidnap me for dinner. We need to get you and Danny out of this house. I probably shouldn't, but I am so sick of being cooped up. I have not had an adult conversation in days. You're 36 weeks along and Aaron flies home tomorrow night. I don't think going out to dinner is going to hurt. Anise lifted Danny. What do you say, big boy? Should we go? 
What I need to do is shop. I don't have diapers or binkies or wipes. I don't have a second car seat for Danny to move up into. Girl, you said the magic word. Shopping and dinner. I'll carry the goods. Anise shooed me out the door. Shopping that night meant Anise running up and down the aisles after things on my list, while I leaned on the cart and waddled slowly behind. She carried the box of diapers and the new car seat into my apartment. Calvin lifted sleeping Danny from his car seat up to his crib. That bedroom looks fun with two cribs set up, Calvin grinned. Pretty soon you're going to have two babies sleeping up there, he said, happily trotting down the stairs and putting his arm around me. I started to cry. Anise gave me a big hug. You're going to be okay. Aaron will be home tomorrow. You've made it. She pressed her face against mine and smoothed my hair. I kept bawling. For some reason, the only thing I could think of was Lita, the snake lady. I looked up at Anise. You don't have any contagious African diseases, do you? Around midnight the next day, Aaron crawled between the sheets next to me and kissed my cheek lightly. You're home. I kissed him back. You're still pregnant, he said, filling my belly. Barely. Five hours later, Aaron lifted Danny out of our car and knocked on Anise's front door. The night stars were still twinkling as the orange sun began to rise. A family of quail ran out from a bush and crossed the road. Wearing light pajamas and fuzzy slippers, Anise walked to the car. Good luck today, she hugged me through the passenger window. I don't know if I can do this. My eyes were wet. There's no turning back now. She drummed the car door and turned away. Want to trade me places? I called after her. Not on your life, sista. Hope you have a good epidural. Anise picked up Danny's carrier, took him inside, and closed the door. I turned to Aaron and took a long, long breath. He laughed nervously. After 30 minutes on the monitors of the hospital, the staff prepped me for a cesarean section. Your baby's heart rate is dropping too much each time you contract, Dr. Magnuson explained. I don't think I can do a C-section, I looked up at Aaron. I didn't come mentally prepared to be cut open. You can do this, Aaron squeezed my hand. A C-section is the easiest delivery, our nurse Samantha tried to console me. It's the recovery that's rough. Dr. Magnuson watched the heart rate carefully. We're going to give you Pitocin to hurry the labor so that the baby isn't under duress for too long. But if its heart rate drops too low, we need to get it out the quickest way possible. I nodded. Aaron squeezed my hand. With the Pitocin, the contractions came on hard and fast. Dr. Magnuson and Samantha coached me through pushing. You're doing great. Aaron held my fingers and kept one hand on my shoulder. Bearing down, I watched ahead with dark hair appear, followed by a slimy body. It's a girl, Aaron said. I listened happily as my baby girl cried strong and loud. She has the shortest cord. Dr. Magnuson held out a length of umbilical cord and nodded for Aaron to make the cut. That's why her heart rate was dropping. The blood supply in the cord was getting pinched off the lower she dropped, Dr. Magnuson explained. Samantha placed her on my chest while she wiped her clean. Hello, baby Kate. She opened her eyes and looked at me. Thank you for waiting until your daddy came home, I told her. Aaron touched her head lightly. Hello, little bitty. You gave us a scare. He rubbed her little toes, then looked in my eyes. I can't believe she's here. I am so relieved she's here. I let out a sigh and kissed the top of Kate's head. 
This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to Chapter 5 of Lies of the Magpie. I will meet you back here next week for Episode 28 of Power Principles, the podcast, which will be Chapter 6 of Lies of the Magpie. Have a great week. Stay well, my friends.